Dear listener, some updates before this week's conversation. You can fast forward if you want to skip this. First of all, we've hit a big milestone. This podcast has been downloaded 30,000 times. A big thank you for all your support. And thanks for sticking with me as I meandered a bit, or an entrepreneur speak, as I saw product market fit. This podcast started as an open-ended exploration of AI, then pivoted to generative AI, and now I'm zeroing in on large language models. With this new focus, I've rebranded this podcast as SuperPrompt. For future episodes, I plan to be guided by burning questions. And the most recent list is on my new website, superprompt.fm. Any leads for the experts who might be able to help me answer these burning questions would be appreciated. Also, if you feel inclined, subscribe to my newsletter there to stay in touch. That's at my new website, superprompt.fm. Now to kick off my rebranded podcast, Superprompt, here's my conversation with Jeff Deverter, the chief technology evangelist at Rackspace. We explore how Rackspace is deploying LLMs internally and enabling a broad range of use cases for their customers too. Something I learned? The concept of a data supply chain. So if a corporation wants to create a base of knowledge that can be accessed using language, then they're going to have to rethink how that knowledge is created in the first place. That's a very different way to operate a business, but maybe what's required if you want to harness the full potential of AI. Please enjoy my conversation with Jeff Deverter. Welcome to the Super Prompt Podcast. Join me, your host, Tony Wan, as I go under the hood with AI experts, engineers, and entrepreneurs to explore burning questions, pitfalls, and best practices, whether you're inside the industry or not. I hope to reveal something you haven't yet discovered. We laugh, we cry, we iterate. For early adopters of generative AI, question that I wanted to explore today is how Rackspace as a company is using large language models internally, but then also how you're enabling your customers. So before I tell you that, the one other piece of our business is helping companies move their workloads out into AWS, Azure, or Google. So that would be taking their servers and transforming those just traditional servers to utilize cloud-based stuff. So we spend an inordinate amount of time working inside of Azure, AWS, and Google and are totally tied into their product organizations, into their roadmaps, into their partner organizations. We resell those clouds. So we know all about these clouds. We have a ridiculous amount of people who are certified to program and operate inside of those clouds. So when we start to think about LLMs and how generative AI specifically is helping to transform the world, you know, everybody woke up from New Year's Eve and said, you know, hey, we can all spell chat GPT now. And Rackspace, no different, looked at it and said, I think the world is ready for a service or an offering around how to do that. Doing a reset so people know that the things we're talking about have only been in the works for the, the last eight months or so. And to have it actually deployed internally 
I think it's a really big deal. The amount we've accomplished in a ridiculously short amount of time with a brand new technology is pretty incredible. We have operating models here inside of Rackspace inside of, and helping them inside of other companies, even though it is a new technology to the world ready to consume yeah. it. So there's these three providers, Google, Microsoft, Amazon. The Microsoft service, cloud service is Azure. The Amazon web cloud service is AWS. And the Google, you internally, the LLM you guys are using, you just refer to as Palm. Well, Google's got several different ones there as well. Palm is one that you can install and run on your own, which is one of the reasons we chose that one. I'm assuming you evaluate it all all three of these. Now, I want to call out again that Rackspace is a partner of all three of them. So we, we're very familiar already with the capabilities that exist there. And just a, a point of clarification on the vernacular, when we talk about Google, we talk about Google or Alphabet more specifically or broadly. Google Cloud is the underlying cloud infrastructure in AWS uh, or in, in Amazon, Azure, Amazon Web Services or AWS is the cloud and then in Microsoft, like you said, it's Azure is the cloud. Underneath all of that would be the different technologies that exist to run these models or, or roll your own because there's a lot of those that are available as well. And so when we considered what our first offering was going to be, we're actually super deep on this side over on the Azure bits, largely because of a acquisition we made a couple of years ago from a company out of Singapore called Just Analytics. But we decided actually to deploy our first workloads over in Google. And we did that for a couple of different reasons. They were really leaning in and wanting us to do some work there. They made it attractive to do that. And they were a great partner and put some engineering resources to help us with some of those things. Well, we decided that we would come up with a large language model that would be trained on data that would be unstructured data coming out of these SharePoint sites and all these various files and various other locations inside a product to be authoritative, to be an authoritative source on all the products and services that Rackspace would offer so that a salesperson could literally just sit down in front of the browser prompt and type in, you know, one of our offerings is in private cloud, a thing called the Software Defined Data Center. And to be able to just type into the prompt, what is Rackspace's latest offering for the Software Defined Data Center? And have the large language model then come back and teach them all of the things that are that are there and authoritatively from all of the sources and cite and give links back to where it got all of that information because that helps to, to deal with any hallucinations or bad data that might be coming out and be able to correct and train things as you go on because you do have to do that on an ongoing basis. But that would allow any individual to ask a question of the organization, in this case, very specifically about products for salespeople, and then even have them think of some of the other capabilities around generative AI to then be able to do this. Watch this. To be able to go, hey, send Tony an email telling him the three reasons why Rackspace is awesome and the five reasons why we're great at the software-defined data center. And off it goes. Here it oh, comes. interesting. Okay. So... Let's pause there because you just shared a lot of information that is uh, worth going into a little bit deeper. So I began by asking what model you're using internally and what might be a way that you deployed it. And you mentioned, okay, well, we're using Google initially, even though you're a partner with all the major providers of LLMs. I'm wondering, like things like privacy and confidentiality and making sure that the information you're not you're providing them doesn't kind of leak to a competitor that might also be using Google 
is there template language sufficient for you? Was there additional language you guys needed to make sure there, there would be, be no leakage? There are multiple service offerings that are and technologies that are available, even if we talk about it specifically from Google. So if we if we look at Google, we know that their public-based service for chat for generative AI is Bard. Now we could have used Bard. We could have we could have used their API, imported our data into there, and utilized that. But we did not want to do that for the exact reason that you're stating. We don't want the world to know all of the things, and we didn't want to point it all the details of your products. You know, like exactly. And I don't want to point it at an internal file share and have somebody accidentally drop a file into that file share that that we don't want to made be made available publicly. And so that's why we went and used just the Palm service specifically, which we created a private instance of and then built our service based on top of that. And that's even something that you can install and, and operate locally as well, So, and which is exactly what we did. So it becomes really important with that data that is proprietary that you don't put it out into the public sphere. You don't use a public service like a ChatGPT or a Bing Chat or a Bard. In this case, we wanted to use a very private solution, and that's why we built it on our own. So we didn't need necessarily special contractual language to be safe with it. it. We would make sure that they're careful with it. We just built it on our own. So when you're working with Google's Palm offering, the data, like all the information about your products and specifications and those sorts of things, all of that, it's a clear delineation that that's your data Google cannot use it for any sort of purpose, even though it might fly over their servers. That's right, which is very similar, you know, if I were going to create um, my own account out there inside of Google and I would build a server and I would have storage attached to that server and I could take my bank accounts and I could put it onto that server or my bank records, that's my server behind my firewalls inside of their service. So it is, there is already data privacy things that are rules that are written in their acceptable use that say that if it's in my environment, they aren't combing through that. They aren't, you know, filtering through that stuff. They aren't making it available for their public search or any other offering. So if it's in my tenant, that's what we call those things, tenants, then it's my data. The same holds true for Rackspace's account when it puts their services crawling through our internal stuff so that it does not make that available to any other public service inside of Google. Okay. So let me ask you a question, because I know you're uh, very uh, knowledgeable about the Microsoft uh, suite of products as well. I'm assuming that sort of public-private separation exists for Microsoft as well, where let's say you're interacting with ChatGPT, whereas if you are a company, like let's say you want to build a version of what you're doing. Oh, actually, maybe I should ask it this way. Could you build a version of what you're doing with Microsoft, do they offer the same sort of like private GPT-4 APIs that give you the same level of tenancy and, and guarantees of, of privacy? Yeah, so all of those these services are built on what are called Azure Cognitive Services. And that's a combination of the technologies to do the LLM stuff, as well as all of the data storage capabilities as well, and it kind of an aggregate. And that allows you to piece those technologies together to create your own uh, generative AI solution, which uh, to then answer your question, yes, we actually have ported this solution into, into all three of the clouds. Our first run was just inside of doing it inside of uh, uh, GCP. Because our customers have their own favorite affinity towards clouds sure. as well. So we need to be able to do this in, in all of the clouds. 
Yeah, just so folks understand the, the dynamics of the IT industry is that typically these the companies have their own peculiar preferences to their infrastructure provider and their cloud provider. Some people are Amazon shops, some people are Google shops, some people are Microsoft shops. Uh, so uh, as an IT services company, you need to be knowledgeable about all three. Can I, because you've had this purvey of all three, could you, like in terms of like, let's call it their commercial agreements, their privacy guarantees, the pricing APIs, are they more or less equivalent? Or like, let's say, if, let's say I'm a CIO not knowledgeable about large language models. Is Would you say like, hey, look, it's really personal preference or would you say, okay, there's these... In this early phase, these companies are different in these ways in terms of, you know, the things you might want to consider when they're deploying. And, and let's say company Y wants to do exactly what you want to do. Like they, they have a sales and marketing team. They want to make all their information available online. Like, would you say like all three are pretty equivalent? It's just, it's kind of a, a personal preference or are there big distinctions at this stage of the game? Now, at this stage, they're all pretty generally the same. I mean, there are nuances, and that's the best way to put it, is nuances. There's different levels of, of I'll call it maybe little levels of maturity. You know, Microsoft was out of the gate super hard with their announcement early this year with their work with OpenAI. AWS was a super fast follow. And then you could say that uh, Google was, quote-unquote, a little later to the game, but they were that was purposeful. They were taking a very measured approach to it. But I would yeah. say that it makes more sense for a company to choose where they're going to host their large language models and what they're going to do with generative AI that matches to their business goals and their established business relationships. Like if they're yeah. all in on AWS and they love ChatGPT and, and Bing Chat and all of that, and they feel like they need to go there to operate there, you know, the one plus one, one cloud plus another cloud does not equal two. It equals, when you think about the level of effort to manage all of that stuff. So my yeah. encouragement is if you're 80% or more in on a cloud, just run it there. They're more advanced than you are. If you get to yeah. a point where you are breaking their stuff or, you, you know, you're asking more of it than it can deliver, oh, God bless you. Then let's go find another solution that, that, that'll manage so, it. But but you're, you're behind them. You're not ahead of them. Yeah. So basically... Because it takes so much effort to really understand the cloud offering and how to operate and manage and deploy from different vendors is that you're better off, even if you have a personal favorite in, in terms of a large language model, you're better off probably working with your existing cloud vendor. They're all gonna they all have incentive to race as fast as they can. And so they're they're gonna things are weak equalize over time. In your internal testing, like I'm how do you benchmark? Like, so for instance, like your, uh, you said you've ported your service to all, all, all three major vendors. Is well, number one, have you tried to benchmark like how well it performs, and is it, is it just largely anecdotal, like, uh, like just customer surveys, like how well do you like this, or is there a more quantitative way you can you can kind of benchmark these, and is it even something you try to do? Well, I'd like to say that what we're doing is so advanced that we could do that sort of thing and there would be meaningful data. But the reality is, is this is still, it's still, it sounds impressive, but it's still kindergarten work. 
the real work is, is yet to come, but it's the foundational stuff that needs to be done. So have we done benchmarking between them? No, we have not because we don't have a use case that's advanced enough for that yet. We don't have a day, you know, if you think about it, so perspective on Rackspace, not everybody knows who we are. So it's a, it's a company of about 7,000 employees, global uh, market size is about three and a half billion dollars in, in revenue. And if you think about all the data that, that are, that uh, 7,000 people can create on an annualized basis, it pales in comparison to, to saying, hey, ChatGPT, go index the world or Bard, go index the world. So it's a small, and in fact, I would say even almost every business use case is going to be relatively small. The real work becomes in tuning those those large language models to really give authoritative answers. Right. And that is just true data engineering work and has literally almost nothing to do with the underlying technology from AWS, Azure, or Google. But I'm, I'm curious about your particular use case of servicing information for a sales and marketing team. You've said you've ported that application to the major cloud vendors. They all have their own large language models. Do you see pretty much an equivalency? Like, do they, does one... 100% equivalence, yeah, yeah. We, we, we have seen no, uh, you know, uh, our application runs just great across all okay. three of them, and we are not lacking anything. All right. So I'm curious of this application you deployed internally. I guess, like, in these sorts of big, cross-company projects, you need you need a sponsor typically. And I'm curious where the drive came from. Was it, you know, did it come from the CIO, the CTO? Did it come from the actual sales and marketing team themselves? Did it come really top-down where the CEO is like, make something happen? You know, like I'm curious who, how did it get started and who really was kind of leading the charge to, to get that implemented internally? Well, it happened at an interesting time uh, earlier this year. And so ultimately, it was led by our CTO, a guy named Srini Kaushik. And that's one of the things that we've said, said in any large transformative effort like this needs to have executive buy-in and sponsorship, if not drive. And so a generative AI solution is no different than any of that. So it's really important that when an organization under, um, wants, to, wants to undergo a, a journey like this, that they have either direct drive from the C-suite or at least sponsorship from them uh, for to, to that end. And it also is important. This is the hardest thing I found with with a generative AI solution, really with with any technology transformation, is what are the business use cases that can be envisioned by the by the organization? That's what we did here inside of Rackspace was then to say, hey, you know how it's hard to find data for your sales presentations? What if we made right, it but, easier? So uh, I want to uh, push you on on that a little bit. How, how do you know that's delivering business value? That even though this was driven from a CTO point of view, it was a one of the first things that happened is he pulled together a working group of about 40 people. And those 40 people span sales, legal, other folks in the C-suite, other business leaders, salespeople specifically. I mean, rank and file and user of it are going to be brought into this thing so that you've got a working group that has a voice to all areas of it, from operations to the sales team, to the leadership team, to the technical team. I mean, everybody's involved there. And so we're able to then measure impact. And in this case, it is ease of getting and speed of which we get data to customers. Now that has the, that is the intangible, but the tangible then becomes sales close faster. So 
what are we now? Uh, this is September, September of 2023. This service was was conceived in March of this year. It, it is in early production in July and August. So it's early days for its actual use. So we are capturing metrics on a daily basis. Okay, so your hypothesis, which is an amazing hypothesis actually, is that by putting this service in place, which is using a large language model to help salespeople and marketing people get information to customers faster is going to result in faster closing of sales. And that's an amazing, amazing thing if it can, if it, if you can prove it numerically, <laughs> you know, that's, I think a lot of companies would be interested in that. Well, and there's an intangible to that too, because how frustrating is it to try to do your job? And if I'm a salesperson and I've got to go learn about software-defined data centers, and then me as a non-technical person have to read through a bunch of PDFs and understand the intricacies of the offering and distill that down into the five key points that we need to communicate out to somebody. And if I make it hard as an organization, either directly or indirectly, to get to that data, it makes it hard to do my job. So the other piece of this is employee retention. So not only efficiency in how somebody operates, but actually job satisfaction that will end in employee retention as well as a metric. These are big claims that I think could be possible, but it'd be great to be able to see some case studies around it. As you were talking, I just occurred to me that, you know, there's many levels of the sales department. I, I used to work at Cisco, so I know there's account managers. There's also sales engineers. And the sales engineers, I mean, their biggest challenge is keeping up to date on on the product and actually learning the product, you know, and and I could see large language models playing a role in actually helping sales engineers learn about the product. You know, these are very smart people, very motivated. And one of their challenges is, is to keep deeply knowledgeable about their own product. And I could see this playing a big, a big role in, in that training aspect as well. I don't know if that's a use case you guys have explored yet. It is. And Tony, you, re you really called it out specifically. If you don't work in this industry, and you, you and I, of course, do, but any of the listeners who don't, don't understand the importance of what you just said. And that is, I can go and learn the product. I will come into an organization and I will learn the thing. But the problem becomes, as week turns into months and months turns into years, and there are incremental changes to that product. And in Cisco, let's talk about networking gear. Those changes are way deep down in the hood in the Cisco iOS and the capabilities that it has there. But what if I could then go in and say, into it into a generative chat window and say, tell me about the difference. Tell me about the changes in operations of this specific firewall that occurred between January 1, 2023 and March 15th of 2023. In that one window, give me everything that has changed and what are the five most important changes. So I want the authoritative list and I want the five most important ones. Bam, in 15 minutes, I will know that, that difference. Yeah. That's huge because that's that needle in the haystack problem we're solving for. So if there's a thousand things that thing will do and we change 15 of them, how do you figure out what those 15 are? Yeah. Okay. Now this spawns many, many questions and many areas of exploration. So I want to go back to kind of what you did to actually train the model and help me understand. I'm kind of a newbie at this too. Like I don't really understand 
the difference between tuning the model versus just giving it data? So the first stage is, is regardless of the type of data source that you have, you have to go in and look at, and, and in some cases it's manually, review the data. One, we want to make sure that it is correct. Is this the right data that we should be putting into there? In other words, not old documents in this case. In some cases, we're saying, hey, go look at this database, not necessarily this file share, but this database of, of information. Maybe it's the data that has to do with our Oracle database and has sales data in it, just to grab an example. A lot of times there is work that has to happen in that database to clean the data up. There's old data that's in there. A lot of times we will create a new database to house all the information. In fact, a lot of times we'll create what's called a data lake, which is a combination of lots of different databases and, and sources of data brought into a single location. Because when we're creating these models, I mentioned before, you know, we were bringing in SharePoint data, we're bringing in file-based data, we're bringing in PowerPoint data, all sorts of different things. Well, if we think about a lot of, a lot of other large language models, there may be a thousand different sources of data that needs to be considered. So first of all, we got to get all that together. Second is we need to help it associate what type of data goes with other types of data. So there may be different types of sales data. There may be HR data. There may be product-based data, to give an example. So then there's also enriching the data. This is, this is actually a piece of what's called enriching the data. So in this case, we're saying that one data source plus one data source sometimes equals what can be viewed as three data sources. Just because we're going to create associations there, we are going to add additional data that's going to make that, that data have more context. And then we're going to say, okay, now large language model. Here's your pile of data. Go ingest it. Now, a large language model has uh, is a neural network, effectively, and it's going to then go. Okay, Can, let me let me pause right there so that I make sure I understand this. So, this process of getting the data ready to be able to feed into the large language model is there a name for this process? Do you just call it data engineering? Okay, you call it. You would categorize it as data engineering, which is you're preparing this pile of data to be able to feed into the large language model. And, and help. in some cases, it's the biggest piece of the work that needs to be done. Is this a necessary part of the process ongoing into the future? I'm assuming the less cleanup of the data you have to do, the more effective it is. Is this process always going to be there? Well, I'll answer the question and give you some caveats. So the first is I think it'll always be there. I do think as the caveat that there it will be a, it is a bigger piece of the job to do now than it will be later because in the future we will have LLMs functioning we will have generative AI and all sorts of AI as part of the fabric of our organizations and so when new programs or new applications or new use cases or things come along we're going to design those to function in step with the large language models Here's a term for you, supply chain of data, because that's a real thing now. Once we engineer all this stuff and it's coming from these thousand locations into so, one. Uh, it's a is, is this a Jeff uh, Diverter term or is this an industry term? Supply chain of data is a real, a real thing. Uh, that's not me. I wish I could take credit for that and get it. Okay. Used. It's an interesting way to think about things. Now that I have a use case that says, I want to ask a question of my organization that may have data that comes from finance, that may have data that comes from HR, that may have data that comes from marketing. How do I bring all that together? Well, it becomes the supply chain of data that feeds 
uh, data lake or some other large common repository and that has data engineering attached to it that enriches okay. that data, that cleans that data, that now the model can consume and make available. Okay, so that part you we generally call data engineering, getting the data ready for large language models, and and this term data lake, it's oh, an yeah. existing that, that's the thing. concept. Yeah, that, yeah that's that, been around for years. And so organizations have been incentivized to do this already. It's just I'm assuming they didn't have a powerful enough querying tool. They could ask certain kinds of questions before. Now they can ask way better questions. Well, and it's how those questions were asked. Before, the people, the organizations were incented to have these because the reporting team, the data analytics team, had specific tooling that they would use then to create reports on the business that would be a historical, I'm looking backwards at my organization at what happened last week, last month, last year. Now, who did that? The reporting team, the data and the data team. And the data team then... Uh, generally a small organization, it's reporting, it's, you know, there's value to the organization, but it's an expense to the organization. It's generally looking backwards in time. But now that we have generative AI that can now create assumptions about the future, I can now ask questions about if this happened in the past, what might happen in the future for my organization? And it becomes a tool then that not just the reporting team uses, but potentially the entire organization uses. So we've taken this technology, a data lake, which is a, a common repository of lots of different sources of data in the organization. And uh, before it was used just by the reporting team to talk about what happened, now can be used by the entire organization in an AI fashion to say what could happen in the future. Okay, so the gathering the data Data engineering, it. the data ends up in this data lake. Now, the data lake is what you feed into the large language model. Is that process of feeding the data in, would you call it fine-tuning the model? Or you're actually, you're not even fine-tuning, you're training the model with... That's the first stage of, of training. It's ingesting, the ingesting of the data. And then you're, and and you're going to refine what that looks like over time and how it responds. All right. In your use case of sales marketing data, new products are being developed every day, you know, and new offerings created. How often do you retrain? Like, and do when you retrain, do you have to retrain? I don't know what's the best way to describe it. Like, there's a chunk of data, the initial ingestion, let's say, is some amount of data, like some quantity X of data is the initial ingestion. There's a quantity Y, which is the new data that's been produced since. Since let's say you trained a month ago, and now there's new products that have been released over the span of 30 days. So that's Y. When you retrain, is it just are you just giving it Y, or do you have to go X plus Y and you have to retrain over the whole set again? Because I wanted to ask you this, because I think this is the challenge Microsoft is having, because the most annoying thing we have as users is this data cutoff, because every question asked GPT comes back with this date, this caveat. It's the most annoying thing. It's like it's excuse for everything is that, oh, my data cutoff was blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, how hard could it be to just train it up with this new stuff? But I know it's super hard. My assumption was that whatever their data cutoff was with September 2021 or something like that, right? Uh, that's call that X. The amount of 
data being generated between then and now is why, okay? I think that when they retrain, they have to retrain over X plus Y. They can't just retrain over Y. And that's why this, it's this humongous task because you can't just do it incrementally. You have to do the whole thing. And I'm wondering, number one, is that, am I understanding that correctly? Uh, I think your understanding is correct. But there's one piece I want to add to it, and that is when we think about the model, there is the data engineering piece, and then there is the AI, I'll call it, I think this is a Jeff term right now, AI engineering piece. Because what, what you want to think about is the way that you and I perceive data. If I read a book or if I'm going to learn a thing, I learn the way Jeff learns. You learn, Tony, the way that you learn. And in an AI construct, you get to configure how they learn, how they associate, how deeply they associate, just as a couple of parameters. And that's part of the tuning process of configuring, not figuring out, but configuring how the LLM is going to, best way to put it, is to think about the data and how it's going to associate. So that's the mechanics of learning, and then there's that data that you're going to learn. Like the way that I learn is the way that I learn about all things, whether I'm learning how to cook, whether I'm learning how to fly, or whether I'm learning how to program a computer. I learn the same way every time. The data set just changes. So when we think about about creating an LLM, it's a foundational capability that I'm going to tune the way it learns, because that's important, and then I'm going to adjust the data set to then be adjusted, the data engineering piece. So those are two separate disciplines. All right. So let me ask you this for your internal project. Did you guys have to change the way the model learns or out of the box it was good enough and you're just feeding it data? We tweaked the way it learned and we tweaked the way it responded. Like when we took and ingested that first bit of data, it was giving some interesting results and not necessarily what we expected. And so one of the things you know, that a discipline you're familiar with is, is prompt engineering. So what we needed to do was look at the way that rackers were going to ask questions of the data. Then we would understand how it was going to be consumed. And that changed the way we learned about the data. Specifically, we went out to a body of folks and said, okay, here's a spreadsheet. Pretend you're going to ask questions of it. And what do you expect to see back? And with that, then we had our, our engineers take that data, feed it in and see if it was giving what we expected back and then adjust it either the way it's learning or the way it's responding so that it would give answers that would be in keeping with what an employee was actually looking for and expecting when they asked specific okay. questions. So that process of tweaking how it learns, is that fine tuning? Uh, that's part of the learning process. It's part of how we engineer the learning process. Okay. Can I think of fine-tuning as changing the way the model learns? Yes, and adjusting that for the... So that's changing how the model learns, and then then there's just ingestion of data, which is you give it data in your training. Yeah. So that's how I can separate the concept of fine-tuning from training. After fine-tuning is changing how it learns, and then you're giving it data, which is training. Yes, we could ingest a thing... And if it's giving the wrong response, then we can adjust how it's learning. We can fine-tune that so that the next time it's going to go refresh its data set, we don't have to fix that because we've changed the mechanics of how it learns. Now when it re-ingests that or updated data, it then is going to give the right responses. So let me ask you something else, which is keeping it up to date. How often do you have to retrain? The larger cost actually to think about is and it goes back even to traditional search, where we're going to refresh the index, we would call it, is called crawling the data. 
And in that process, it is costly from a processing perspective, actually. So unless you tune the process of, of it, you can actually take the entire systems down because depending on how much power you have coming at it, you're going to ask more of those underlying systems than they can actually deliver. I have to recrawl the SharePoint site, the file share, the database, the, the data warehouse, and bring that data back into the large language model and ingest that then into the neural net. I'm trying to use SharePoint, but I can't get SharePoint to respond because I've taken SharePoint down with my crawler. Okay. That could be a compute-intensive process. It is a compute-intensive process. Okay. Which means you can't do it very often. You have to make a wise decision how often you want to do it. Yes, yes. The bigger the company, the more impressive the data set, the more reams of data being generated every day. So it's a question of how to keep it up to date. And are we in a situation that there's always going to be a lag? That's a business decision, isn't it? It's a business decision. So the IT can come back and okay. say, look, for us to refresh this data, it's going to cost us this in time. It's going to cost us this in impact. And it's going to cost us these dollars to do it. And now, based on what that bit of source data is, the business, the company can then make the decision in a public use case. Let's say we're going to run all of this out in Azure. Now, we're still going to do it in private Azure. We're going to use Azure Cognitive Services, which are a collection of services inside of Azure to provide AI-based services. Now, those services are billed on a per-transaction process. The more transactions I send through this thing, whether it's to train it or whether it's to use it, it's gonna, there's their tangible cost for it. Now, we're not talking a dollar per, per transaction. Usually, you're getting buckets of thousands for a, you know a pennies, it feels like, but that adds up really quick. But if it's something that we want to keep up to date on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, continue to recrawl my stuff every single day, make it available to my tens of thousands of users, that could actually get quite expensive, as opposed to if I take one of these models that I can run on private servers. In other words, I'm going to go buy Dell servers. I'm going to put... EMC storage behind it. I'm going to buy my own NVIDIA GPUs. And now they function inside of my data center. And now I'm responsible for what? I'm responsible for the people to operate it. I'm responsible for the data center where they live, the cooling and the power and the internet fee. But once I paid that bill, I can run that as often as I want without a per transaction deal. It's one of the reasons why you can take a Palm that you can run in your own private in instance and, and, and run it there. But there are lots of other models that you can run that are out there that you can run on private stuff. It's actually one of the use cases we see at Rackspace to generate these models in private gear where you're not getting a per-transaction fee. Okay, so let's pause there. Let's make sure everyone understands that point. When you're using a service such as a Google, Google and you're running it in their cloud, you're paying a per-transaction fee over time can be very expensive. So if you're doing a lot of transactions and you want to keep your model or, and or you want to keep your model up to date via retraining, it may be advantageous to run their language model in your own private cloud. You're not paying the transaction costs. So there's a point at which that becomes a more cost-effective approach depending on how you're using the service. Are there customers you're working with that have that kind of a use case where they're running stuff privately? Yeah, the short answer is yes. They're pretty private companies, and so I'm not at liberty to give names. 
No, no, but I'm just curious. Are there companies that have a compelling enough? Oh, yes, 100%. Okay. Yes. All right. And uh, generally, is the use cases like financial? Like I could see like maybe it's a financial company that's trying to trying to figure out how to trade, you know, like I could see those kinds of companies. Uh, are those the kinds of companies that would be incented to build it uh, privately? And are there other classes of companies that might be incented to do it privately? So maybe a better way to think about it is the use case towards an industry. So financial services, you think about trading, a very large language model of how to, you know, do instant trades and that sort of thing. Absolutely, that exists today. Second would be, let's think about legal for a second, whether it's a legal firm or a legal department inside of an organization. For instance, I'll tell you right now, we're looking at ways to ingest our contracts with our customers and our partners into uh, this private model that we've created so that we can then come in and a customer comes along and says, look, hey, we want to we do this thing. We want to redline your contract in this way. Well, now I can ask the question, have any other customers at Rackspace done this? How close to other contracts is this one compared to other ones? Can I just, can I have it analyze it and give me a thumbs up without having to have a very expensive lawyer read a 15-page contract as opposed to the LLM going, this looks like the other thousand that we've done, let it go. Interesting. Okay, so I don't want that in a public inner yeah, in a public. Yeah, and you uh, can understand uh, why having up-to-date information on a, on a, almost like a per daily basis would be valuable because if customer why you've made certain accommodations for it, like today, like you could that's very useful to know that oh I've accommodated customer Y this way maybe I want to com accommodate customer X exactly the same way. Another thing to think about in that use case, it's a fun one, is I love the continued, you know, mode of consciousness. So let's go through and say, all right, so let's ask the question of the contracts, which ones are the outliers and what is different about them? Show me the 1% that are different. Ah, here's the 1% that are different. And does that create a liability for the company? Yes, it does create a liability because this could happen and that could happen and this could happen. By the way, the LLM's telling me all of that. And then the last question is, is there a salesperson? Is this associated with individual salespeople or sales teams? Or is it random? Well, maybe it'll tell me there's one specific team or one individual who's creating a liability for the company. Now I have a training opportunity. <laughs> or, or the opposite of, oh, this person created this accommodation and it got us all this business. Let's put them on the other deal. <laughs> Very, very true. This or who can who can run stuff, uh, you know, through the process faster, <laughs> and, and then we can learn how that's different, and now we can, you know, get to a point of of cash, uh, positive cash flow faster. Yeah, than very another. interesting. And that's the fun with when we start to think about the what ifs. Look, you we you asked the one question: Is there any industry? I said, well, think about it as a group, the legal team, and then we started to look at some use cases there. And now, imagine this inside of an organization who is familiar with all aspects of how how it runs. This is what happens around a room, whether it's virtual or physical, and people going, oh, but if you ask that question, we could ask this question, then we could ask that question, and that's how you train a model to be able to give stuff unique to an organization. Let's say in five years, the model you're getting from Microsoft, from Amazon, from Google, out of the box, is just going to work better? Or do you think there's a layer for another startup to kind of just say, hey, look, just with this plugin, I can tune it. Who's going to provide that value? I so guess? Uh, initially, I think where we are right now is it's a services play. It's 100% a services play because we're, we're learning a lot all along the way. Remember, we started this conversation going, this is brand new this year. The world is just still figuring this stuff out. 
But the other piece is I think that the next step isn't necessarily a plug-in. I think it's a uh, industry-specific LLM that can tune new LLMs in that industry. So I think what you find is you'll have one AI. No, no, no. no you gotta, you gotta. No, wait. Pause there. Okay. Double click. I'm double clicking on that. An LLM. Repeat that and, and explain that a little. Yeah. Bit so more. an LLM that knows the industry, that is smart about insurance. Let's use your example. That understands the history. That understands how how types. That, that understands the vernacular. That understands how that stuff associates together. Now it can look at new LLMs for organizations in the insurance industry, and then tune them based on what it already knows about the industry. So who do you? I mean, this is crystal balling. Is that a Google? Is that another company? I think it's, just, I think it's another company. Who, who, um, what you have right now is you have some really, I mean, Stanford right now, Stanford has three different large language models running to do something really interesting. They have one, they have, they have two models that are debating each other and they have a third model that is the moderator. Isn't that interesting? So think about that in the context of, so you have, you have one who's, who, you know, was going to, yeah, the moderator asks a question. One of them answers. The other one counters. They're separate models and from different data sets, separate and everything. But now you take that in the context of how do I train an insurance model for an organization? Well, if, if you have one that already knows the intricacies of all aspects and case law that has to do with insurance and has everything that it understands about it that can now come in and say, look at your data set in your LLM for your organization that's private and tweak and tune it, ask questions of it, adjust it, ask questions of it, adjust it back and forth a million different times that it could do the work of what now is a services play. Yeah. So basically, the big vendors are going to have these amazing foundational models. And maybe there's an entire services industry or application industry that is taking those models and customizing it per like a particular vertical. Because Financial services people ask certain kinds of questions and have certain ways of thinking. It's actually ways of thinking. That's a very good way to put it. It's a way of thinking. Like healthcare has a way of thinking as a, we as you know, technology product people have, have a way of thinking. Like I, I could be talking to someone that builds a radically different thing that I have no, in, like cars actually. I'd have no idea how cars are built, but it's a product. You know, you're trying to make money. It's mass produced, you know, so I have something in common with that person who's managing a car, you know, even though I don't know specifically, we have a a way of thinking and we have an understanding. And so that language model needs to, needs to comprehend that. And it's slightly different than the way other people think. So there's an opportunity there. There's a play there for someone or some entity. I think so. And then, you know, you start to think about the other values that then that that brings is then as the economic climate changes, as business goals change, now you can go back to that LLM that is industry aware and business aware and then start to ask it questions. I think a lot about what's today. Today's Wednesday. Yesterday was the iPhone announcement and I watched it over lunch because we're geeks here and I find that interesting. And they had a big thing on sustainability. Sustainability has become a huge driver for Apple, a lot of industries, rack spaces as well. But that's a business dynamic that has changed in the past 10 years to where it's gone from, hey, we should really think about green things to we're going to make it a core tenant to what we do. 
So think about being able to ask a large language model, say, hey, we have this entire process for manufacturing iPhones. If we consider the environment and environment being defined as carbon and all sorts of you know, waste and how do I you know, not deal with cobalt? And they made a big point about reusing cobalt because it's a big challenge. And said, what, what, what are my biggest – and being able to ask the model, what are my biggest environmental exposures when it comes to manufacturing an iPhone? We're using this analogy, another way of thinking, if you look at everything from the perspective of sustainability, the questions are very different. How you explored problems are very different. There's this whole thing about supply chain and like, hey, look, how do we onshore it? Let's, let's look at this from a, hey, hey, Apple, let's onshore everything. What's that look like? That's a great <laughs> example. So that's uh, taking your large language model that's trained in an industry with specific known business constraints and saying, here's a new one. Now we're going to train you on this. Now let's look at, at everything that we've been doing through this new lens or including that new lens, maybe not just through it. Fascinating. All right. Okay. Let me, I want to do a little bit of a right angle turn here. And, um, you know, one of the, I think a, a deep concern of these generic large language models that the providers have been putting out into the world is this uh, aspect of hallucination of it, uh, these kind of unpredictable answers or somehow uh, they could be false, they could be misleading, they could be offensive. And that scares large language model providers on many dimensions. And I'm wondering in the corporate context and in how you deploy it internally, how much of a concern it is? Is it, how do you do to prevent that from happening? Because, for instance, if you're sending information to a customer and you're sending erroneous information about a product specification, that has severe consequences. <laughs> it could have severe consequences. So, like, how big is it a deal? How are you safeguarding against it? How are you trying to reduce it? Like, talk a little bit about about that from the perspective of what you guys have done, or maybe it doesn't even occur. Like maybe oh, it occurs. What you're doing. Oh, it occurs. Yeah, it's, okay. it's absolutely a concern because the, the model's trained to give an answer. I mean, rarely will it come back and say, I don't know. And so that becomes the challenge. So it's easier in a smaller data set, like an internal use case, as opposed to, you know, a BART or something that's, that's, can we talk specifically about what you guys did? Like, that's so like real world to me. Yeah. And I feel like many companies are going to start where you did, where you started, which is, hey, we've got this small little thing inside, or no, we've got this need inside, we're going to do it and see what happens. So Yeah, like, now the specifics like, of how to actually do it, I'm going to be fuzzy on, but here's a sentence. No, no, but, um, but hallucinations, like, I mean, is it, do your users experience hallucinations? What do they do? Like, you know, how do you safeguard it? Like, is there some double check you do before the information goes to a customer? <laughs> like, what, what happens? Well, yeah, and remember, uh, in our case, the customer for the use case I gave you are internal employees. So the internal employees are then going to come back and go, you, I, I asked you about software-defined data centers, and you're telling me about a Google product. That is an inappropriate association at this point. Okay. So with that, we could provide that example back to the engineers who do the training, because what's ultimately happened is inside of the neural net, an association has been made that it shouldn't have, have been made, and that can be corrected in the code. And so we would have data engineers who would go in and, and, and retrain around that and fix that specific thing. 
But hallucinations are, are you know, a valid concern. As the data set is smaller, the opportunity for hallucinations is less because you have less random, oh, random's the wrong word. You have less in the neural like associations. Yeah, associations in there that, that actually can occur. And it's the, with, when that gets multiplied to incredibly large numbers, then that becomes a, an opportunity for the hallucinations to really start to pop in. Okay. So let me ask you this then, like, because right now it's an internal to tool and an internal use case. And I guess my question is like to turn it into something customer facing, then hallucinations, like to me, like is the, is the approach to caveat everything <laughs> or is the approach to, here's how we do it. The approach is to give the links to the authoritative source of how that question was answered. That's what we will actually do. And so in our ah, in our I internal see. solution where we come back and say the software-defined data center is all of these things, and here are the five documents where I found that information and constructed this answer. That's actually one of the reasons why when I'm using a public source, uh, public LLM, I'll oftentimes use uh, Bing Chat because Bing Chat gives a lot of the source, it cites its sources for the answers, which ultimately leads me to even better data, I've found. But the way that we've dealt with it, and I think it's a great way to deal with it, is when we give it, when we have the machine give an answer, we, we tell the user where that data came from. It also allows them to go back and learn more about the point that's being made of why, you know, one of those points, why the, the software divided data center is great or whatever. Actually, that's not approach because I think the LLMs are really great at making sense of large amounts of information to give you kind of the summary view or a thematic view or a relational view between things, but then saying here are the links for the definitive source. So don't quote this paragraph. Don't take it as fact. Check these sources. I think that covers the bases. Yeah. And uh, as an internal person, then we can come back and say, hey, you guys said this thing. I'm the product manager and you cited this document. It's the wrong document, data engineers. Let's go refresh or, or point at this one. Yeah. Great. And what are other projects you guys are considering uh, that you can talk about other projects? So you, you mentioned one. There's phase two and three of that one. We call that one ICE, the intelligent co-pilot for the enterprise. And so it is something we'll make available as a service, as an offering to the rest of the world. Right now, we're doing it internally. So the first use case was that sales and marketing data. Legal is going to be in there. Uh, uh, the actual sales data out of our sales force will, will ultimately be in there. So people can ask questions of that. We'll have, oh, check this out. We'll have expense report data in there so that leaders can say, hey, uh, for my employees, you know, who's keeping inside of it? You know, why? What are the trends? All this sort of stuff. Employees are going to love that. Oh, I know. <laughs> I just want one to do my expense report, which I have to do this afternoon. But it really, the intent is how do we take those common tasks that people spend time trying to find answers to and make it available? So another use case, another tool that we're, we've built as well, which is similar to this one, but it's intended to provide IT technical information to employees about, you know, how do I reset my password? How do I, when do I, when can I get a new phone? When do I get a new computer? You know, I got locked out of this thing. How do I get access to that thing? But that's called the Rackspace Intelligent Technical Assistant, Rita. We give it a name. We give everything names around here. But it's similar to ICE in that we're giving, but this one is specific to the IT team because we went through and looked at, at how many people we employ to just sit there and answer a phone to ask, answer very simple questions. Well, let's make that available through a chatbot that could answer those questions and then even provide some some solutions to it as well. Interesting. I really appreciate 
uh, how generous you've been with your time. I know you're a busy executive, so wondering if there's anything that you'd like to talk about. I also am very curious on how you're using it in your own life. There's been a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt, or FUD, as we call it, around it. We believe here at Rackspace, and I do as well, that that AI solutions need to be responsible solutions. AI is a tool that helps enhance humans in what we do. I think that AI is something that's going to create opportunity. AI solutions need to be viewed as how do we create them in a responsible fashion. And uh, at Rackspace, that is defined as solutions that are sustainable. How do we, not just from a green perspective, how do we make sure we're not injecting a bunch of carbon all around the place, but also how do we make solutions that over time, employees in the organization can actually sustain them uh, over time and create a, val- a business value. Second is they're symbiotic. Again, they're here to help humans, not replace them. And then uh, third is they're secure. I think it's, you know, we, we touched on the fact that there are public models and private models that can be deployed and companies need to be really cautious with their data and make sure that it is safe and Insecure. Anything like in your personal life, your private life, anything you use it for? For me personally, in all honesty, it goes back to uh, what I do as a as a profession. So I'll oftentimes ask it, "Hey, I've got I, I've got this challenge, this opportunity. How would you approach that?" You know. Per- Put yourself in the seat of a person who does this type of a job, and I'll explain what I need to do and how I need to respond, and and then see what it what what it comes back with. Yeah, Jeff, I really appreciate our conversation and and how we covered so many topics uh, over a, a pretty broad spectrum of subjects. So uh, yeah, we we made the rounds. That was fun. Yeah, I appreciate it. And what's the name of your podcast, if, in case people want to check it out? Sure. It's called Cloud Talk, uh, found on all the major providers. So anybody can go find that there. Or I do a weekly live stream at 8.30 a.m. Central Time on LinkedIn and YouTube. If you follow Rackspace or follow me, you'll get alerts when we go live. All right. Fantastic. Thanks again, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks for joining us at the Super Prompt Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a five-star review. See you next week at Super Prompt.